particularly as it relates to team sports, the GOAT was the person who choked, the person who made the mistake that cost the team a chance for victory. Now today, if you call someone the GOAT, it means almost exactly the opposite. It means the greatest of all time, the greatest of all time. And people have a whole lot of fun arguing and debating who's the GOAT, who's the greatest of all time as it relates to basketball. Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Or if it's NFL quarterbacks, is it Joe Montana or is it Tom Brady? And when does Patrick Mahomes of the world champion Kansas City Chiefs get entered into that conversation? Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time in wrestling? Is it, I don't know, Kale Sanderson or Dan Gable or Eric Volker, the pastor at Hope Grimes? Who's the GOAT? Uh, Eric's going to come up and help us out with the service a, a little bit later. We're glad that he's here. Uh, whether it's movies, greatest movie of all time, or TV show, or rock band of all time, we love to argue and debate who's the greatest. What about the question, what's the greatest country of all time? Uh, there was a TV show on HBO a couple years ago called The Newsroom, and uh, Jeff Daniels played one of the main characters. His name was Will McAvoy. He played the anchor at a fictional cable news network. And in one of the episodes, Jeff Daniels was on a panel of media elite, and the journalism students in the in the I was about to say congregation. In the audience, the journalism students in the audience were asking questions of the panel, and one of the students asked the panel, tell me why America is the greatest country in the world. And so the different panelists gave their answers, and then it was Will McAvoy's turn, and he said, it's not. It used to be, but it's not anymore. And, and that clip, it's about a three-minute clip. It's gone viral, over, well over a million views of people listening to Will McAvoy talk about this. So I was doing some math this week, and I was counting up once again the number of countries that I've been able to go and visit. And I'm sitting at 20 countries now that I've been able to visit. I've been able to see quite a bit of the world, still a whole lot of the world that I have not seen. If you were to ask me, Scott, where of all the places that you've traveled, where would you most like to live? This is what I would pick. Right here, central Iowa, in the middle of the good old United States of America. It's the 4th of July. We're, we're celebrating, we're pausing this weekend to celebrate so many things that are good, so many things that are even great about this country I would hope at the same time, most of us would be honest enough to say, yeah, while there's a lot that we love about this country, there's a lot that we would like to be better about this country. We would like for our kids and our grandkids to have an even better country than what we experience. And, and my hope is most of us would even be, I don't know, we, we'd have the mindset that says, I don't want that even just for me and the people closest to me, but I want that for anyone who would call the United States home. I want them to have a better country as we move forward. Now, I am not a politician, I'm a pastor, so I don't have a political answer to what could make America a better place to live. I think the pastoral answer begins by asking this question, is Jesus the goat of your life? Is Jesus the goat of your life? How great is Jesus in your life? The Bible reading that Eli just read for us is an example of some of the greatness of Jesus. 
There are people in Jesus' day who do not particularly like him or the message that he's delivering as he's trying to uh, invite people and cast this vision for life in the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of people that wanted to silence Jesus, and some of those people come to him in this story in Matthew 22. They want to trick him. They want to trap him so that they could potentially arrest him, and then the Jesus thing, the Jesus movement, would be over. So uh, they ask him, Jesus, is it okay to give our taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus asks for a Roman coin. Someone brings it to him. And the coin has the name and likeness of the Roman emperor of the time. Jesus looks at the coin, and then he looks at the crowd, and he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And the people who ask the question don't really know what to do with that response. They're a little dumbfounded, and they end up just leaving Jesus alone until some other time when they want to try to trap him again. Is Jesus the goat of your life? How great is Jesus? For the early followers, the earliest Christians, Jesus, this, this question about how the greatness of Jesus was really important. One of the titles that they gave to Jesus, one of the names they called Jesus was Lord. You think about Doubting Thomas, when he finally gets to see the resurrected Jesus and put his fingers through the holes in, in Jesus' hands, the nail-scarred holes, Thomas looks at Jesus and exclaims, My Lord and my God. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit gets poured out and Peter preaches a sermon that causes 3,000 people to join the church in one day, how amazing is that? Part of the sermon that Peter gives that day, he encourages people to believe Jesus is both Messiah and Lord. He's both Messiah and Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, without the work of the Holy Spirit. This idea that Jesus is Lord has always been really important to followers of Jesus. Lordship has always been really important. It's all about this question, who's in charge? Who has the power? Who has the authority in your life? Is Jesus the goat in your life? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 1 begins by Luke telling us, after Jesus had said all of this, he returned to Capernaum. And when Luke writes all of this, after Jesus had said all of this, all these things, Luke's actually talking about the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Luke's gospel, that's what comes right before Luke 7. And so the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus casts this vision and sort of reinterprets what is a good life, what is a blessed life, what, what's the good life all about. It, it's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reminds us, don't live your lives being so judgmental. Sermon on the Mount where Jesus challenges people to love their enemies. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has been talking and talking and talking, I can't imagine, as someone who talks a lot, ever saying anything like this. But Jesus says to everyone listening to him, anyone who listens to my words and then does it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. So after Jesus had finished saying all these things in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes back to Capernaum. And Capernaum is a village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's where Jesus headquarters his ministry. He's born in Bethlehem, flees to Egypt, uh, spends his childhood growing up in Nazareth, but when he begins his ministry, his headquarters are in the village of Capernaum. 
also headquartered in the village of Capernaum are the Roman soldiers who are occupying Israel in Jesus' day. And so you could very literally say Capernaum was the headquarters of the enemy of Israel. And the people of Israel hated, they despised the Romans because they understood it's the Romans who are keeping us from being free. You keep going in the story in Luke chapter 7 verse 2, there's a man, a Roman official who has a servant who is not well and he wants Jesus to help. In most translations, or many translations, instead of saying Roman official, it uses the word centurion. And a centurion would be a Roman soldier who's in charge of 100 other soldiers. A centurion would have been a great person in the cultural context of Jesus' day. They had power. They had authority. They could command people to do things. And because it was Roman soldiers they were commanding to to do certain things, again, the centurion was despised. And yet the centurion hears about Jesus, and he wants some help, and Jesus says, Jesus says, okay, let's go to the centurion's home. But as they just are kind of getting ready to start off, the centurion says, Jesus, listen, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have a conversation with you, to even talk with you. Just say the word, the centurion says to Jesus. Just say the word from wherever you are, and my servant will be healed. Now remember, a centurion is, he's someone who's well thought of, highly respected, someone people look up to, even though they don't particularly like him, they look up to, they understand this is a guy with power and with authority, this is a a great man, and yet this great man understands he is not the goat, Jesus is the goat. And so Jesus responds to this detested, foreigner, Roman centurion, Jesus responds by saying to everybody who's listening to him, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. I think it's difficult to overstate how offensive that would have been in Jesus' day. Maybe as offensive as a preacher on the 4th of July asking, is America the greatest country in the world? The people listening to Jesus that day in Luke 7 were offended. Come on, Jesus, what about the Pharisees? Come on, Jesus, what about the teachers of religious law? What about the, uh, the rulers of the synagogue and the temple? Don't they have more faith than the Roman? What about your own soldier, uh, disciples? Do they have more faith than this Roman centurion? And Jesus' response is no. They don't because... The Roman centurion understands Jesus is the goat. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority. He recognizes the greatness of Jesus. And that's something that at this point in the story, Jesus' disciples are are not really sure about. How great is Jesus? You turn the page from Luke 7 to Luke 8, and uh, in kind of the middle of Luke chapter 8, there's this story about Jesus and his disciples again in Capernaum, but they say, let's get on a boat, and Jesus wants them to go across the lake to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and as they're going across, there's a big storm, and the boat, it's like shaking and rocking, and water is filling it, and everyone's freaking out and scared, and they ask Jesus for help, and he calms the storm. The disciples are amazed by this. When he 
makes a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. And so the disciples are starting to get more of an enlarged picture of the greatness of Jesus. They've seen him teach like nobody they've ever heard teach before. He offers forgiveness of sins to people. He heals people of illness and disease. He has the power to control the weather patterns. Who is this man? Is he the goat? Is he the greatest of all time? Is he in charge? Is he our Lord? See, lordship was so important for the people of Jesus' day, the early Christians, because there was someone else in their world. There was someone else in their context who wanted to be called Lord, and that person was the Caesar. Uh, The emperor, the king of the Roman Empire, he wanted to be called Lord. And maybe you're familiar with Greek mythology, Roman mythology. You know the names of many of the gods that the Romans worshipped. They did not worship one god. They worshipped a whole pantheon of gods. And part of the way that you worshipped, if you were part of the Roman Empire, is you would go to the Roman temple. You'd go to the Roman temple and you would offer sacrifices to the Roman gods, including Caesar. Caesar was viewed as a son of the gods. So Caesar was one of the gods that you would worship and offer sacrifices to. You'd go into the temple, there'd be a bowl filled with incense, like powdery, smelly stuff, and you'd grab a little pinch of it, and then you would drop it into the open flame of an oil lamp, and it would you know, sparkle and make noises, like very tiny, tiny, tiny fireworks, that sort of thing. And there'd be puffs of cloud and smoke. And then, as you finished worship, you would say, Caesar is Lord. It was your declaration of faith. Now, one of the things we love about America, one of the things that's great about America is freedom of religion. In the Roman Empire, they did not have freedom of religion. They were commanded by law to worship and to offer sacrifices to the gods. And the way that law was enforced, they positioned Roman soldiers at the Roman temples. And the town clerk was also there. And so as the people would file through one after another, offering their sacrifices, taking the pinch of incense and and lighting it, uh, offering these sacrifices, and then one after another saying, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. The next thing that happened is the town clerk would give you a piece of paper. It was sort of like uh, your attendance slip for worship. The piece of paper was called a labellus. It was a a certificate of verification that you had actually worshipped and sacrificed to the gods and professed your faith, Caesar is Lord. If you know anything about the history of the Roman Empire, particularly as it relates to Christianity, you know at some point there are these great persecutions of Christians uh, perpetrated against Christians by the Roman Empire. And this happens because uh, throughout the year, whenever they want to, the soldiers could ask you to show your papers. They could knock on your door and ask to see your certificate, your labellus, your proof that you sacrificed to the gods and that you declared Caesar is Lord. If you could not produce that piece of paper, you could be arrested. You could be turned into a slave. You could be fed to the lions. And this happened to Christians a lot in the early days of Christianity. Because here's an important distinction. The Romans did not care if the Christians said Jesus is Lord. 
They didn't care. It was okay for the Christians to say Jesus is Lord. They just had to also say Caesar is Lord. But by refusing to do that, by refusing to sacrifice to a whole bunch of gods, refusing to say Caesar is Lord, insisting to only say there's only one Lord, only one goat, only one who is worthy of my worship, and that's Jesus Christ, the Christians were in jeopardy of being persecuted or killed. And so you start to see why the Romans were so despised. You start to see why they were so hated. Uh, You start to see why there, there was this interesting sort of thing happening as you read through the scriptures. And you start to see that it is no accident that Jesus would make his headquarters in the same village where the Romans had made their headquarters, the village of Capernaum. Jesus is the goat. His disciples, as they follow after Jesus, are starting to see this more clearly all the time. And, And I wonder if maybe one of the messages Luke is trying to help us kind of understand would be the message, Jesus is in charge, exclamation point. Jesus is in charge, exclamation point. But, but so many times, you and I put a different punctuation mark at the end of that phrase. We say, Jesus is in charge, question mark. And one of the things that causes us to put a question mark after that phrase is our fear. The command that's repeated more than any other command, it's not the great commandment, which is to love God with everything you have, but it's the command that repeats. Uh, repeats itself more than any other, is the command, fear not. Don't be afraid. God, Jesus, the biblical writers over and over, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. They understand that our fear can really be an obstacle to our living a life of faith and are declaring with this faithful assurance, Jesus is Lord. You fast forward a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 10, and you start to see some interesting things happening. Our fear gets in the way, and please don't hear me saying there's nothing to fear. I've been talking to a lot of you over the last several weeks, the last month or so, and a big part of what I'm hearing from you is how scary everything just kind of feels whether it's what's going on with a global pandemic and what is all of this going to mean, whether it's sort of social unrest, racial tension at home, closer to home, and there's a lot of fear associated with that. Please don't hear me say Jesus thinks there's nothing to fear, all kinds of things for us to fear. In that boat, when the disciples are with Jesus in the middle of the storm, what Luke tells us about that encounter is as the water is starting to fill up the boat, the disciples and Jesus are in real danger, Luke writes. They're in real danger. A couple chapters later in chapter 10, Jesus now is sending his disciples out in mission to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to heal people of of their illness. And he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. I think we would all agree a lamb surrounded by a pack of wolves is in real danger. Jesus purposefully and intentionally sends his followers into real danger. And at the same time, he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. 
If you fast forward to Luke chapter 12, you see this starting to play out. Jesus tells people, his followers, you don't need to be afraid of of other people. You don't need to be afraid of people on this earth who have power and authority. I'll tell you who you should fear. You should fear God. And I kind of wonder if Jesus maybe had a smirk on his face as he's saying this, because as he looks at the the people listening to him, I I think he can tell there's a little bit of confusion on their faces. Well, which is it, Jesus? Am I not supposed to fear, or am I supposed to fear God? Am I not supposed to fear, or am I supposed to fear God? Which one is it? And so Jesus makes an illustration to try to help people understand what he's getting at. He says, how much are five sparrows sold for? Two pennies? And yet your heavenly Father knows about each one of them. Your heavenly Father cares about each one of them. He's saying that there are certain things that you may look at and say, that's worthless, that has no value. But Jesus says that's not the way God sees it. God sees everything as something of great value. And so sometimes when we start to get overwhelmed with fear, I think it can be easy for us to give in to this temptation that maybe God doesn't care about what we're going through. Maybe God doesn't care about what is scary in my life. But Jesus says, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. You're much more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows, and God cares greatly for the sparrows. It's almost like the message Luke is trying to help people see as, they're, as they weave their way through story after story. It's almost like what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is, I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear. I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear. Uh, Mark Schiffman is a professor at Villanova University, and he wrote an article a couple years ago now. The article is called Majoring in Fear. And part of what Schiffman is doing is he's talking about how college students these days seem to be just kind of overwhelmed with fear. And part of the reason is because uh, they've listened to and watched the adults in their life. The adults in the lives of our young people who we say, hey, there is a, I don't know, trick, there's a formula, there is a path to getting to a place in life where you don't have to worry about anything that could happen to you because you're going to have all the resources you need to manage whatever life might throw at you. And so uh, Amazon has been able to track, you know, what are people highlighting on, on our Kindles as we read book after book after book. And again, this statistics from a couple years ago, but the number one highlighted passage of any book on Amazon Kindle comes from the second volume of The Hunger Games where Katniss Everdeen says, sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. I don't know about you, when I saw that's the most highlighted passage in any book on Kindle, I was like, come on, there's got to be something better than that, right? Sometimes things happen to people, and they're not equipped to deal with them. You think about the, the Hunger Games, it really resonates with our young people. As they watch these characters try to deal with just kind of unimaginable circumstances that they have absolutely no control over. How are they going to live? How are they going to survive? How are they going to relate in the midst of all these ridiculous circumstances? 
And so what we continue to tell our kids is, here's what you need to do. Here's the path. You got to do whatever you need to do in uh, high school to get into the best college. And then you got to pick the right major and probably add another major, or at least a minor on top of that, and get some certificates and the right internship and the right people who uh, can write references for your resume and you get in the right job. And all of a sudden, you're going to have all the success you need. And then you will be equipped to deal with anything life throws your way. The problem is our children are a lot smarter and wiser than we give them credit for being. And they look at us, the people who are telling them this is the path, and all they see in us is fear. Fear over, oh no, what if the wrong person becomes president? What if the wrong political party gets into these positions of power? What if they gain control over the House or the Senate? Or, or what if, what if, what if, what if there's an economic collapse? What if there's a worldwide global pandemic? What if the stock market tanks? What if, what if, what if? And they see the fear in us and they go, something is not connecting here. Here's what Mark Schiffman writes at the end of his article. Our fear, and he's not just talking about young people, our fear has become a pathological condition a desperate need to bring the future under control. A desperate need to bring the future under control. Uh, man, I wish we had a confession booth today, right? I, how, I couldn't, wouldn't we all, if we were completely honest, wouldn't we all admit we have a desperate need to bring the future under control? One of the things the last three or four months has been making crystal clear for all of us is we are not as in control as we would like to think we are. And it's freaking us out. And it happens in all sorts of ways because on sort of one end of the spectrum, there are people who want to, they want to know, they want to have the control to make sure I know I'm never going to catch the virus. And so whatever we need to do to make sure we can control that, let's do it. And there are other people on another end of the spectrum who are like, whatever you do, I don't want you to control me. This is America. This is the land of the free. Don't you dare try to control me. And, and all of us find ourselves somewhere on that continuum, somewhere on that spectrum. All of us, if we're honest, would have to admit and confess to we have some control issues. And you can start to see the way control is connected to fear and the way fear becomes an obstacle to faithfully confessing that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is enough, like we sang just a little bit earlier. I, I look at uh, the disciples, and it's just fascinating to me. They're on that boat. They're crying out to Jesus for help, and Jesus helps them. But do you remember what Jesus says to them after he calms the storm? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? And he says that to his disciples one chapter after telling everybody, this Roman centurion has more faith than anyone I've ever seen in Israel. I love it. I'm fascinated by the disciples. And, and one of the things I love about it is it gives me hope. Because the reality is the disciples never get it. They remain fearful until the end. Remember what happens when Jesus gets arrested? The disciples run away and hide and they lock the door. And they turn off the lights and they are cowering in fear, hoping that what's happening to Jesus is not going to happen to them. 
But then something happens to Jesus that changes everything. It's a game changer for the disciples. Jesus dies. On the third day, he's raised from death to life. And when the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples, it changes everything. When the resurrected Jesus appears to them and says, don't be afraid, the disciples look at one another and kind of shrug their shoulders and say, okay, I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear. And you start reading through Luke's second book, the book of Acts, and all of a sudden the disciples are completely fearless. What happened? What changed? It wasn't that they came and listened to me preach a powerful sermon. What changed for the disciples was they saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw death, the biggest enemy that we have in life, had been defeated. And when you don't have to fear death, you can fear not. I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear. I wonder if maybe we could all say that out loud together, even if we're not sure we actually believe it. I wonder if it might just be a good thing for us to say. I'll say it one more time, and then we'll say it together. I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear. Say it with me. I don't have to fear even when there's something to fear, because Jesus is Lord. And Pastor Eric is going to come up, and he's going to lead us to the Lord's table right now. Well, it's it's been uh, nine years since I've been here on internships, so, you know, I'm a little grayer, a little older. But the great thing about coming back into the fellowship of God is that uh, it's not about us, and it's about Him, and, and it's under His Lordship that we gather here. Uh, there could be nothing better than to come on the day of communion. And uh, we've got communion today. And like, you've got one of these little cups. It's like, what is that? Right? You, you, maybe we've been doing this for a little while this way, and it's like really different than we've done before. But one of the things that this little uh, individual cup, that you peel this first cellophane wrapper off the top and get the, the wafer or the bread, and then the second part is, the, is to drink the wine. It's been a good reminder for me, I hope it has for you, that it really was never about doing it, you know, with, with the plate and the, and the chalice or, or this. We, we, we gather in communion because of the word Lord. We, we gather for communion because of the word Lord. Uh, Scott used the, the word confession just a minute ago. There, there's some liturgy that different churches, even sometimes the Lutheran church uses. This way of coming into the presence of the Lord in a transparent way, in a way that we come with all that we are. All of a sudden we get in the light of the Lord and the things that we think don't need redeemed in our life, you know, the very best of us. We realize that under His Lordship, it's a place that our entire being is humbled. Under His Lordship, it's a place, it's a presence where we get to confess, where we get to profess what's going on in our lives, where we get to proclaim His Lordship and how it is we come to it, how it is He offers it. One of the liturgies says in a prayer, maybe some of you know it, Most merciful God, 
We confess that we are captive to sin. And we can't do anything about it. We're captive to to fear and to doubt. We're captive to trying to find life apart from you. When we forget that we're under your lordship. And so, Lord, in in the things that we do and the things that we've walked past and the things that we haven't done, under your lordship, would you forgive us? Would you teach us how to love each other the way that you loved us? Would you guide us and renew us and lead us so that we might walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name? We come to communion because of the word Lord. And when we stand and sit, when we lay down in that presence of our Lord, when we're in the presence of our Lord, we experience the kind of life that he desires for us. In the night in which he was betrayed, here's the word, our Lord Jesus. He took bread, he gave thanks, and gave it for all to eat, saying, Take and eat, this is my body given for you. He wasn't suggesting, he he wasn't like telling a story. He was lording, proclaiming and announcing realities of the difference that his broken body would make in yours and my life. When they had finished eating, he took the cup. He gave thanks and blessed it and gave it for all to drink, saying, Take and drink. This cup is the new covenant shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin, lording, commanding and equipping, guiding, teaching, offering refreshment, forgiveness, healing, wholeness, why we gather in communion. So I want to invite us to pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power, the glory, and the kingdom, forever and ever. Amen.